Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Every week it is the longest part of my fucking week is looking up those jokes. People like me sit at the start telling silly, stupid, fucking bad jokes. Then send me in some links. Send me some links somewhere because the internet doesn't have the jokes for me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. H.R. Smoking C.T.H.C., or you can just call me Josh for short. And with me, as always, is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the bride of Smoking Scene, the India horror, the expert of guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. Hi. Amy, we've talked before about you and me starting this uh, little project mm-hmm. with about, uh, yeah. about three or four weeks of a window between when we recorded and when we released. And we were laughing about how that wouldn't last very fucking long. And uh, it's now three or four hours. Yeah, yeah. A few people are going to be listening to this when it debuts the few hours away from us. Uh-huh. It's 11 o'clock. It's half 11 on Tuesday night now. And it's all, oh, man. But to be honest, it's a good thing. It's because we had a good week. Yeah, we Our did. numbers started to go up, and then we had a Facebook. We started a Facebook group, and the numbers started to go up and that. But then all the social media became very demanding. <laughs> yeah, you've been stuck to your phone. Oh fuck! Man. But see, I feel, I feel like if somebody posts or comments on our stuff, yeah. I have to comment back. I feel I have to, yeah, like, you know, yeah. I, it's just something I have to do. But the thing is, if we're busy doing something like we're recording or whatever, I can't do it then. And if I see it and I forget about it. And then I feel bad about it later if I realise I didn't message back to that person. Yeah. We'll still be seeing me like, yeah. well, he messaged everybody else but not me. And it's yeah. like, it's not. I just forgot, man. And I'm yeah. forgetful. Dr. Smokenstein does not have a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got the name. <laughs> but uh, outside that, things have been going well. They have. We've yeah. got a thousand members in that group in less than a week. It's good going. Yeah, and they're all pretty cool people. They're all yeah. cool. We're talking horror. We're having fun. I'm enjoying it. Because we're in Halloween season. We sure are. It is October. And I promised a big series for October. We did Sleepy Hollow last week to kick off the, Halloween the old Halloween feel. But we're going to cover a serial killer now for the next three weeks. Three solid weeks of the shape. Michael Audrey Myers. And I can't help but wonder, <laughs> is this a boy named Sue situation? Is it a oh. The, the middle you. name of Audrey caused this man to murder countless amounts of people. 
<laughs> I don't think Mid-Lamon had that effect on the child the way he turned out. Oh, it's pretty serious. That's the cool thing about it. We got lots of case files and notes and all this mm. on this guy, so yeah. we can get deep into it. And today, that is what we're going to be focusing on. Today, we're looking at between 1957 and 1978. Mm-hmm. So that would be kind of, well, from his birth up until his first big murder spree. Okay. Uh, I say first big murder spree because there is a murder in between, a few murders in between, and uh, a lot of time in the sanitarium. But we'd have a lot of transcripts, a lot of, uh, you know, there was recorded, there stuff recorded down, reports, and once yeah. he passed away, it was released. We have this stuff in our possession. So we've been reading through that stuff, and it's interesting stuff. It is. I mean, there's a lot of doctor says this, Myers, silent. Doctor says that, Myers, silent. silent. Doctor says this, Myers, Silent. <laughs> but we'll get he to that soon. He moves his head a bit. <laughs> kind of at the side. He kind of looks like a confused dog when he's uh, <laughs> you know, being yeah. questioned and yeah. stuff. But he's not uh, He's not the most talkative. He's, uh, you wouldn't want to be stuck next to him at a party or anything. Of any age. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you wouldn't want to be stuck next to him anyway, yeah? No. <laughs> so, would you want to get into it? Because we do have a lot to go through here. Definitely. There is a fair bit in just his early life. So, no, unfortunately for us, we are about to start the story about a man who hasn't uttered a word in over 50 years. Not a noise, not a peep, not even a once-off tiny little whisper. Because the subject we're going to focus on for the next few weeks isn't really a man at all. Well, not a normal man at least. He has been called the boogeyman by many. Simply the shape by most. But luckily for us, while Eith stayed speechless for all that time... Others couldn't shut the fuck up about him, <laughs> leading to countless stories, insane fan cults, and multiple medical studies. So we have no shortage here when it comes to uh, source material. I mean, we've said it already. Mm. Do you know, the, 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 there was a lot released after his death. So yeah, they were very tumble. Well, the Smith Grove Sanitarium psych yeah. files. Before we get into the into that, first let's get into the childhood of Michael Audrey Myers and what exactly happened to turn this seemingly shy six-year-old boy into a cold-hearted, unstoppable, empty shell of a human being and bloodthirsty killing machine. Michael Audrey Myers was born on October 19, 1957 and was the only son of Peter and Edith Myers and younger brother of Judith Myers. Okay. The family resided in a two-story house at 45 Lampkin Lane in the suburban town of Haddonfield, Illinois. Peter Myers was has once told Michael's doctors in Smith Grove that they knew from day one there was something wrong with Michael. He recalled how the hospital staff were left stunned by the silent child. Mike, Michael didn't make a sound from the second he left the room. No crying, no cute little baby noises, just silence. That would be scary. This got so bad that hospital staff and the parents were left guessing when it came time to feed him, wind him, and change him. For the first few weeks at home, like the, the parents would regularly have to check and see if Michael was still breathing in his crib. Yeah, but sure, like that's normal. Like I still I still find myself checking if the lads <laughs> are still breathing in their sleep if they're being too quiet. Like standing there not breathing myself to hear if they're breathing like I do the same thing, yeah. But have you ever actually thought while looking at them that they might not be breathing? Because that's how slow and relaxed Michael's breathing was. He was practically motionless. motionless. She'd have to go over and touch. Yeah. To see. Put her ear up to him to see here. Oh, I still do that. Say <laughs> <laughs> so hand on their chest to make sure it's still going up and down. I watch the chest if I'm worried. Yeah. 
At the time, it was just put down to a strange anomaly, something he would grow out of. But if you ask me these days, I think he would have been classified as autistic very early on. He, uh, here's a little more on why. Age didn't improve Michael's condition. He was four years old before he learned to walk and five before he finally uttered his first words. Yeah, these days he would have 100% been diagnosed early and treated as a young child. Like it's great that our understanding of special needs and autism in general like lets us get to kids like this earlier and help them have a better quality of life. Peter recalled that when Michael finally did start to move, it was in an inhuman way, almost robotic-like. Think like, do you know the wrestler Kane? Yeah. The way he moves. That's how Michael Myers moves. Okay, okay. Uh, or, the pers- or the Terminator. The Terminator. Terminator, you know, the Terminator without personality. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine Michael saying, I'll be back. I can't imagine ever him ever saying anything else, but that seems to be <laughs> I've never heard his voice. I've never even heard a recording of his voice, so I'm not 100% sure Is what that would sound like. That he was supposed to with, you Just know? imagine Kane from the WWE saying it. <laughs> <laughs> like he would for the rest of his life, Michael would exhibit long spells of nothingness. A form of patience, like he was waiting for something or someone to come along and inspire him. This would happen for the first time that we know of when he was just five years old. And there's also the incident that inspired Michael's first words. Peter said that the family dog, named Rascal at the time, a lovable, playful, friendly pet that loved nothing more than to cuddle up to Michael and lick his face as Michael stared emotionlessly into the void, according to Peter. One day Rascal was getting riled up at some kids he could see playing outside through the window. Peter said he went to go quiet and down, but before he could get there he heard Rascal yelp. By the time he got to Rascal's location in the house, he found Michael standing there, Rascal laying lifeless at his feet. It was at that point that an upset Peter screamed, Michael, what did you do? Michael simply replied, quiet. Then went right back into the void that was his brain. It must have been incredibly hard for his parents and, or any parents of a child with autism in the 1960s. Like, there was a very limited understanding of the nature of autism in the 60s. Like, it was often viewed as a singular and r- rare disorder and there was very little recognition of the wide range of symptoms and abilities that individuals with autism might possess. Now, as a result of that, there was a huge lack of, 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 of like appropriate services and institutionalization was all too common. There was an awful lot of social stigma. There was also a pretty shit theory in the 1960s called the refrigerator mom theory. So that's where they thought that autism was caused by the lack of maternal warmth or like emotional bonding. So it was often like blamed on the mother as well. I think that's fucking awful. So that's kind of like, you know, again kind of situation where they're saying again might be the way he was because of the mother being so attached to him. Is what they're saying, like this is the cause of autism. Is that kind of attachment. That's what they thought in the 1960s, which was an awful thing to put in the mother. Yeah, Do you know, well, as in, there's a too much, too much market well, as it is. Come like, here, come here. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of views on uh, that side, of, on sex in general in the 1960s. Yeah, that are, yeah. <laughs> they didn't answer it. Over the next year, they could see Michael become more and more withdrawn. He didn't have friends in school and kept himself possibly living in his own little kind of fantasy world in his head. Mm. And there's actually a study being conducted by the University of Arizona to see how, uh, how deeply like fantasy warps the serial killer's mind. 
they're actually studying in it's nine cases of 14 to 18 year olds who have clinically significant fantasies of becoming serial killers. So it's attempting to see if they can spot potential killers based on the potency of sadistic fantasies of teenage boys and to see if there's any way to interrupt the link between like fantasy and action. So like, you know, when a serial killer goes to kill, there's like six stages. And the first stage is when they start to lose their grip in reality. So they're trying to see if there's some kind of trigger that they can stop it, like, yeah, at that yeah, point, yeah. like, before they well, start to lose it. plenty of examples. I mean, I bring him up a lot because, again, it was the case I read the most about with BTK. Oh, yeah. That guy was in a full-blown fantasy fucking world the entire time he mm-hmm. was operating. Mm-hmm. Which, you know what I mean? Like, in a like, real genuine, like, his own fucking universe, like, mm-hmm. while he was doing it. And a lot of, I suppose with sociopaths in general not being able to feel other people's emotions you're going to fantasize your own kind of your own way of doing things you know because yeah. you're not worried about the other person you're not you're, ta- oh, you're not yeah. thinking about the how it's going to affect anybody else around you so your fantasy world is going to overtake mm. it and you're going to have these circulars who are going to play out those fantasies eventually like yeah do you know yeah. but yeah yeah well it was a few months after the rascal incident and just under two weeks after Michael's sixth birthday that he would commit the act that would cement his name in time as the living embodiment of the boogeyman. Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials. No good at Insta. Can't send a tweet or an X or whatever that supervillain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon. But we know... You want to chat. You want to be kept updated. You want to be alive, alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the antisocial soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more of what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll all always try to reply to everyone so come say hi we don't bite well at least amy doesn't and she keeps me well fed so you got nothing to worry about now back to the show (laughs) on october 31st 1963 michael committed his first act of murder his parents were away and he was at home with his sister judith who was supposed to be babysitting him but cared more about spending some intimate time with her boyfriend danny After Danny left, Michael, dressed in a clown costume, went into the kitchen, picked up a kitchen knife from the drawer, then walked to his sister's room and stabbed Judith to death. He then quietly walked back down the stairs and into the front yard where he waited for his parents and the police to come and arrest him. From this point until his first escape in 1978, Smithsgrove Sanitarium would become the home of Michael Myers. It's from the sanitarium case files and records that we have, that we get much of the rest of our information on Michael's early life. Now, the next portion of our show will be like transcripts and notes from sessions with our meetings about Michael, along with doctor's notes about Mm. Michael. A good portion of these notes coming from his primary doctors over the year and a man that we would eventually become his legal guardian, Dr. Samuel Loomis. Mm -hmm. So just a little background on Samuel Loomis. So before becoming a child psychiatrist, he was a soldier in World War II, where at one point he was a prisoner of war. And after the war, he attended college to earn his doctorate in child psychology. And it was around that point in his life that he met Elizabeth Warrington at a party in London. 
So the two, the two of them apparently smiled at a party in London, and the rest is history. They would you know, eventually become very good friends. They never married, or uh, they didn't really even really have what you call a conventional relationship. Apparently, Loomis was too wrapped up in his work to commit time to his own personal relationships, but oh. they did have a son together named David. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I know the way he was about Michael Myers, so I, oh, <laughs> I Michael, imagine, can't Michael, imagine yeah, his yeah, primary yeah. goal, a primary... Uh, he, that was his life's work. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1957, Elizabeth pleaded with Loomis to stay with her in England, but he felt that he belonged in the States. And as he left, he chose not to hug her, as he thought it would be misleading and could imply that there was a chance of more commitment and love between them. But I kind of get the feeling that he was actually kind of a bit cold. You think Loomis was a bit cold? Yeah. Yeah, but I think that maybe Michael was a bit more of a... not, not it, was, it was more like a labour of love. I, 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 I don't... I, know I feel like, like a, Michael might have became for him is like, uh, do you know, Colin Robinson on um, What We Do oh, in the Shadows. An energy vampire. An energy vampire. I think yeah. he fucking just sucked all the positivity mm-hmm. out of Loomis and you know that the, the harder Loomis found it, it the, the more it dawned on Loomis that he couldn't fix Michael mm-hmm. the, the, the more fucking downhill he went and more cold and more separated from life he had. I think for him to even know know in his own head that that kind of evil lived in this world was too much for him to be to, to show emotion towards anything else oh yeah yeah I would just say though, if Michael Myers was an energy vampire, he'd be like you know Colin Robinson's like idol. Not even to having to say a word to be able to drain everybody's energy, <laughs> just like walk into a room done. I suppose it's like the uh, the monster uh, monsters Inc. argument there, isn't it? Are you, are you gonna take that? Are you gonna get your monster energy from laughter or scaring? <laughs> Colin Robinson is. You're gonna scare the living fucking energy out of him. Are you just gonna bore the energy yeah. out of him? <laughs> So there is little known about uh, David Loomis other than he went into the family business following in his father's footsteps to become a psychiatrist. So from what I can see from my research, the father and son were pretty estranged and David harbored a lot of resentment for being put second to Michael Myers all his life, which is completely 100% understandable. Yeah. I mean, like, David, he didn't even visit Loomis on his deathbed. I mean, I, I haven't gotten this far into it yet, but I'm pretty sure there are multiple quotes I read mm. in case files and newspapers and stuff like that of Loomis saying, although he was strong, felt strongly that Michael should pretty much just be put down like a rabid dog, that Michael was like a son to him, even without them ever speaking properly, that yeah. John Michael was like a son to him. And then there's here's his son who's a doctor following in your footsteps, wanting mm-hmm. you to be in your life. And the, the, uh, on the other side, that John Michael came to him at six. Yeah. There is a lot of room for kind of like, you know, I know Michael couldn't really bond, maybe. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wasn't maybe the bonding was, he wasn't type. Bonding type but, <laughs> Unless so, he wanted to bond you to a wall with a knife. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> So Loomis died in 1996 from complications of heart failure following a heart valve replacement surgery and his body was cremated. So Loomis was a driven and goal-minded man but he was also a very strict and no-nonsense man. He demanded answers when he wanted them. So at the time he had a softer side when dealing with those who he could relate to and to those he un- who, you know, who understood what he wanted but you did not want to tick him off. Sounds like a great man. Mm-hmm. 
and I wouldn't mind softer side to people he, he related to. He had a softer side to a child like Michael, so I mean, Michael? yeah, <laughs> he related. Well, maybe coming from a, being a prisoner of war in World War Two. Holy shit! He related yeah. to Michael being trapped in a place. You know, Michael's trapped in his head. That's true. And and you know he can't get out, and he's got this rage and anger. Maybe being a prisoner of war, World War Two, which would have been yeah. at the time the most horrific thing to fucking happen in the world. Yeah. You know, cause nuclear fucking warfare to be brought upon yeah. the fucking world. Maybe yeah. he was relating to him in that sense, you know? Maybe. How many of his sisters did a Loomis kill? <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> uh, but that's just it. He sounds like a great man. One could argue that Michael's treatment at the hands of Sam Loomis only worked to further Michael's condition, though. In his 15 years treating him, Michael only fell further and further into his catatonic state. What we'll do now is kind of go through case files and notes and we can discuss as we go along. But like what I mean when I say about like his treatment, it's almost like, uh, I'll talk about it a lot more later on. Mm. But when doctors thought they were getting through to Michael and they were treating Michael, Michael was really the one baiting you in. Okay. Michael is smarter than what he leads on. Yeah. Just because he's quiet does not mean that he he's empty up there. Okay. You know? Yeah. So again, the next section covers all of Michael's first day at the sanitarium up until his escape in killing spree in 1978. There are sections of time where there's no info. But that's just because nothing happened and it was just nothing noteworthy to take down mm. there was occasions where Loomis was dismissed as his primary doctor brought back and then due to Michael's catatonic states you know there was nothing to take note of and eventually they kind of put him as a lower class kind of inmate they didn't okay. worry about him as long as he was being docile and he wasn't causing any trouble mm. he was kind of left to the side but every now and again someone would you know attempt to get through to him yeah and then when they weren't able to do it they'd call Loomis back in and he'd of course yeah yeah Take a whack at it. Yeah. Thing is, they would try everything with Michael, but nothing ever worked. Nothing caused a stir in the monster. So once he was docile and didn't cause any issue, they would just abandon his case out of frustration, medicate him, and try and leave him live out his days in Smith's Grove. Right. Loomis knew better, though. Let's get into the hospital notes and transcripts, okay? So okay. this is from his admission notes and court notes from, you know, straight after the first murder, after... Mm. Edith's death. Okay. So this is exactly what's written down transcribed. Michael was admitted to Smithsgrove Warren County Sanitarium by the state after his parents Peter and Edith Myers found that he had fatally stabbed his sister Judith Myers on October 31st. Michael's parents returned home to find him in their front yard, knife in hand and with a blank expression. In a statement by Peter Myers to the head of the Smithsgrove Psychiatric Board, Dr. Adam Vincent, he remarks on Michael's apathetic nature. The following is the previously mentioned statement. Michael was always a different boy. No friends, no affection towards pets, and barely ever spoke. All Michael did was sleep, eat, brush his teeth, repeat. Sure, he had a life outside of his daily routine, but it wasn't much. Kids at school would pick on him, and I even saw it when he, I dropped him off at school. But I did, but it didn't look like he cared. I just don't understand him, and I don't think I ever will. I hope you can fix my boy, Doc. It won't bring my daughter back, but please fix him. 
Upon arrival at Smith's Grove, Michael was immediately seen by Dr. Adam Vincent. Dr. A- Dr. Vincent attempted to conduct an interview with Michael, but Myers simply would not speak. The following is a transcript from the failed interview. Start. Dr. Vincent. My name is Dr. Adam Vincent. The date is November 1st, 1963, and I am joined by a newcomer, Michael Audrey Myers. He is a six-year-old and has admit, was admitted to Smith's Grove by the state after murdering his sister with a large knife. Now that we have all of that out of the way, how are you, Michael? Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, do you feel bad for doing what you did? Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, your father told me you were quiet, but I didn't know you were this quiet. Ha ha. Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, the patient appears to be severely withdrawn, his eyes only staring forward and with no movement whatsoever. Sorry about that, Michael, I have to record this little talk we're having, but you know, you know what? It would be an even better talk if you'd say something to me. Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, fine, how about this? Why did you kill Judith, Michael? You, your own sister, so she was minding her own business and you stabbed her to death with a knife. Why, Michael, why did you do such a thing? Myers turns to face the wall. Dr. Vincent, Michael, why don't you look at me? Did I upset you? Dr. Vincent touches Myers' shoulder. Myers immediately removes Dr. Vincent's hands from his shoulder. Dr. Vincent, patient is shutting me out completely i'm going to have to shut down this interview if you can call it that do you want to say goodbye michael myers silent dr vincent that's what i thought well goodbye michael end after a bit of coaxing myers uh, the photographer there was able to get a picture of his with him facing forward the photographer claimed to cover the flash with a towel, thinking that Myers would be alarmed by the sudden bright light. However, the resulting photo was that of Myers' silhouette, rendering the photo worthless. The photographer cited patient admission guidelines when confronted by Smith's Grove the t- uh, director, uh, Thomas Blight. The photographer stated that nowhere in the patient admission guidelines does it say that he, has, he was obligated to take a photo that shows the patient's face. The photographer further argued that Myers was a stubborn little guy, not allowing him to take a proper photo, and said guidelines uh, and said guidelines have since been updated due to this loophole. Myers' admission photo was left as is, so it's basically you can't see his face properly. Yeah, there are later on. I mean, I, I'll post stuff on Instagram in two weeks' time when we're doing uh, kind of near the ending of his story to okay. clear fa- uh, p- mm. uh, pictures of his face. But most of the ones from the seventies. They're very shadowed. They're very silhouetted. They're, yeah. Again, they're going to be up on our Instagram. Uh, on November 2nd, Myers was given a mandatory psychological evaluation. Before the, before the state was to decide on whether to keep Myers for a finite time or indefinitely, his mental state had to be examined by specialists in, in child psychology. Dr. Adam Vincent referred Myers to one Dr. Samuel Loomis, an expert in child psychiatry. Dr. Loomis was given the assignment at 10.31 a.m. by Dr. Vincent and the evaluation was to take place at 1 p.m. However, the evaluation had to be set back to 2.28 p.m. because Myers was engaging in uncooperative behavior. Myers refused to leave his living quarters. No matter what the staff would say or do, Myers would only sit in his bed, look straight at the wall. 
As their facility rules, especially in the child's wing, children's wing, staff are to find any other means of getting patients out of the room before resorting to physical removal. Dr. Loomis eventually came to Myers living quarters in an effort to get him out through persuasion. According to witnesses at the scene, Dr. Loomis knelt by Myers' bedside, looking up at his face. Loomis, still looking directly at Myers, reached into his coat pocket, pulled out a piece of paper. Dr. Loomis unfolded the paper, revealing to Myers a photo of his house. Myers slid from his bed onto the floor, following Dr. Loomis out of his living quarters. So, do you want to run them through the, t- the transcript of their first interview? Because I feel like I haven't heard your sexy voice in a little while. So, Dr. Loomis, it is November 2nd, 1963. My patient Michael is sat across from me. I'm talking to you, pal. And he hasn't uttered a word since his arrival to Smith's Grove Sanitarium. At least, not what we've heard. All right, friend, why have you followed me here? Myers, silent. Could it be because I showed you a photo of your home? Do you want to go home, friend? Home. Ah, see? You can speak to me, Michael. I won't bite. Why are you here? Judith. Judith? What do you remember about Judith? Sister. Indeed, Michael. Indeed. You're doing very well. Since you're doing so well at answering my questions, I think you deserve a reward. How about a candy, Michael? Here, take it. Myers hesitates, waits, slowly reaches out to retrieve candy. There you go. Go on, eat it. It's cherry. Myers, motionless, silent. Well, you can eat it whenever you feel like. Now let's talk. What happened to Judith? Do you want to talk about that, Michael? Myers, silent. You won't get into any trouble. Myers, silent. Let's move on then. You were trick-or-treating, right? How much candy did you get? Was it any good? Or just tons of apple that old geezers like myself hand out? Myers, Judith. Well, what about her, Michael? Alone. Was she alone? Me. Why were you alone? Myers, silent. Was she meant to be babysitting you, Michael? Judith. Yes, Michael, Judith. Silence. How do you feel about Judith? What? How do you feel about Judith, Michael? Was she nice to you? Maybe a bit mean like my sister was. Feel? Yes, Michael. How do you feel about Judith? Myers, silent. Do you know what feel means, Michael? Myers, silent. To feel is normal, Michael. We all feel in some way or another. Myers, silent. We all get happy, sad, angry, so on and so forth. Do you ever get angry, Michael? Myers, hangs head. Do you ever get sad? Myers, silent. Do you ever get happy? Myers, silent. I see. Your silence speaks much louder than your words, Michael. Would you like me to explain feelings to you? Myers raises his head. All right, well, feelings are what make people happy, sad, or angry. Right now, I'm happy to be with you, but I'm mad that you don't know what feelings are. Do you feel anything like happy, sad, or angry in that right now, Michael? Myers silent. Oh, Michael, how confused you must be in this world. You know, I once met a little boy, not much older than yourself, who didn't know what feelings were. I taught him the idea, how to understand what people are feeling and so on. Do you want me to begin teaching you too, Michael? Myers, silent. We can do that later. Right now, let's just focus on this moment. Where are we, Michael? Room? Yes, we're in a room. What colour is it? 
voice. Where is this room? What is this big building built around the room called? Smith's Grove. You're right, Michael. And what's today's date? What number of day of the month of November are we in right now? Second. Good job, Michael. You're a bright child. You just need some help is all. Well, that's all the time we have for now, Michael. It was marvellous talking with you, my friend. I look forward to our next talk. But until then, take care, my friend. Myers escorted from room. Michael seems to be experiencing the classic symptoms of childhood psychopathy. No emotion, no understanding of right or wrong, no moral compass. Michael, as distant as he may seem, is very much lucid, very much aware of his surroundings. It would appear that all he does is listen, watch, learn. If his father's statement is accurate, I would say that Michael could even be experiencing obsessive compulsions. We'll see where this leads us, but for now I would advise holding on to him until we can figure out why he murdered his sister. End. End. So first impressions here. He seems to be empty as a human, just a shell, you know, but there are small signs of something being in there. In, in these early stages, Loomis does manage to get a, the odd response out of Michael, and he does become almost like his master in a sense of, to go comparing like Michael is a vicious dog, you know. He did as Loomis told him. Mm, he's very optimistic here. Like He really thought he could save Michael. I wonder if he'd given up sooner. Uh, would he have given up sooner if he'd realised how much of his life it would end up consuming? Uh, the transcripts generally continue on like this for a while with Loomis trying to get reactions from Michael through various different methods. Mm. One of the first methods he attempted was the crayons and colouring book. So Loomis bought in uh, well, what he thought Michael was a present. So it was like a colouring book. Just an empty mm. colouring pad, a don't know pad, and mm. uh, crayons. Mm. And basically left them off with that, like, you know. Yeah. And in their next session, he wanted to see what he had drawn, and they were going to look through it. Yeah. So the first drawing was just a picture of a girl. Okay. And, you know, Loomis says, very nice, lovely. Is that your sister, Judith? Myers, as usual, silent. Yeah. Next one is a drawing of a family. So you have the mom, the dad, the sister, and the little boy. But the little boy was drawn in red, whereas the rest of the family were drawn in black. Okay. So you asked him about that again, but Myers again silent. But yeah. you know, it's noteworthy that in this family drawing, Myers has put himself as a different colour. He, he's outside of the norm when it comes to this. It's sad when you look at the drawings. The next drawing is a picture of the girl again, mm. still smiling, but mm. covered in blood. Okay. Now, Loomis asked Michael about this. Mm-hmm. And he was like, why is the girl smiling if she's covered in blood? She's obviously hurt. Why would she be smiling? And this was again to try and get kind of the uh, notion of emotion through to Michael. Mm. And, um, you know, he was tra- explaining to Michael that when somebody's hurt, they'd have a sad face on. Yeah. And um, that was another thing they tried was they, they um, put like cards out, emotional car- kind of cards out. Mm. And um, they'd ask Michael, like, you know, what's happy? And he'd point to it. Like, basically, like, putting emojis on a yeah, table yeah, in front yeah. of him in, in cards. Okay. It's like, what's happy? And they'd get picked. But he, he just could never get the right never emotions, matched. like, you know. Yeah. And this was, again, here, he's, Michael, when he was kind of confronted with this, this mm. girl, she's covered in blood. She's obviously hurt. So she wouldn't be happy, Michael. Why? She should look sad. Michael just did the head cocking and confused dog kind of look. Yeah, of, you know, I don't understand what you mean, like you know. 
So for a number of years, this went on, and a lot of time of the time, as I said before, Loomis was left to his own devices. As long as Michael didn't hurt anyone, what harm were they doing? And who knows, maybe Loomis would do the impossible and crack the the enigma that was Michael Myers. I mean, Michael was a pretty patient guy. He was happy to go along with the routine, like, while he waited, well, for whatever it was he was waiting for. (laughs) So that kept the men in charge happy, and it gave Loomis a lot of freedom. So over the years, Michael, he had a few visitors outside of his doctor, especially Dr. Loomis, but his father did come to visit him once. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so Peter visited Michael on November the 10th, 1965. And in order for Michael to be allowed to see his father, he had to cooperate with the, you know, like a few mandatory shakedowns of, of his living quarters and his person by the orderlies. And then he had to go to physical afterwards with the Smith's Grove physician. So no cause for concern was found on either occasion. Okay. So Peter, he brought this card with him from Michael's fifth birthday. And on the front of the card, Michael had kind of, you know, blacked out the face of the youngest kid on the front of the card. So there was like two boys and a girl. And then the youngest boy had his face completely blacked out. So again, similar to the red child next to the black family. Mm. Is this? Yeah. Exactly. So that was kind of, he was, he was brought in by Peter to try and get a reaction from Michael. But there was no initial reaction from Michael. It was just the usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Myers, well, silent. It does go into reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, so when he was asked by Loomis why he defaced the card, when Michael was asked, there was no response. And that kind of pissed Peter off a bit. He started getting louder and started demanding answers from Michael as to why he'd killed uh, Judith. So he was like shouting that he was evil and that there could be no salvation for him. That word pisses me off. Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. Sorry. No. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, it's terrible what happened. It would be a terrible thing. Like, oh, we have two kids. Yeah. If one of them killed the other, oh, it God. would destroy us. Yeah. Because you lose both your kids in that exactly. scenario. But I would still be visiting my child, my other child, in the hospital every single mm-hmm. fucking way, every day if I could. You know. I don't think I'd ever give up. I'd never turn no, about no, my no. child's evil. You'd no. never give up hope. No. no, the, no. These two were very quick. So I would ask you again. What was there, Mike? What was it about Michael Myers that made people around him just sense that there was something not mm. fucking right there? That exactly. they, there was no hope? And why know? could Loomis not fucking see it? <laughs> why is <laughs> Loomis the only trained guy that took him how long to see it? I know. But, he yeah. got there, but hence, we're going to see why. Let's go. So he tried, Loomis tried to get the situation back under his control, telling Peter that evil was a human construct, but nothing could change Peter's mind. And he continued on his rant, demanding that Michael looked at him. So Michael did look at him. But at the same time, he took a pencil from his notepad, which had been kind of, it was included in the cranes in the notepad, and he jammed it into Peter's Oh, fuck. Fatally wounding him. Yeah. So about eight months after having killed his father, in which time Michael did not speak a word. Shock fucking horror. He began, well, for a six-year-old, <laughs> <laughs> he began cognitive assessment sessions with Dr. Loomis. So this Actually, was yeah, hold on, before you go on, people who, who don't know, we have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Once those motherfuckers realize how to talk, work out how to talk. Let's not just call them the MF They words, do not Josh. shut the fuck up, ever, ever. We got one of them who just talks in his sleep all night long, all night long. All night and whatever the most popular video game is, that's what you're going to be listening to. If I hear Roblox one more time, if I hear Minecraft one more time, <laughs> I've never taught anybody 
could make me not want to know about Super Mario. <laughs> you know what? When you cancel it out with the funny things, like, you know, them pretending to fly when they're asleep and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, they do funny stuff. I joke. I joke. But the Jesus Christ, the fact that this kid uh, is six years old, did not speak. Mm-hmm. That I mean, is, uh, that just is to just... put it into perspective, one of ours could come to us uh, and I'd be reading something like, right, give me two seconds. Okay, so anyway, but anyway, <laughs> it's like, oh God. So yeah, yeah, this is crazy that this kid isn't uh-huh. talking. But anyway, so, so eight months. This was things, uh, you know, like the, cogn- the cognitive assessment sessions, that's things like what you went through, you know, the, the, the faces, faces. Exactly, yeah, yeah. in the papers. Um, so, and, and, you know, things like take him outside to play ball with him. Just to try and kind of open them up a tiny bit. Get them moving. Exactly. Hand-eye coordination, get your mind working. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and being inside, shut inside. The whole idea of taking him out to play ball was being shut inside. Obviously, you know, it's a cabin fever. Yeah. It's going to, yeah. So coming up to Michael's um, birthday on the 19th of October that year, Ken Loomis noticed that Michael was becoming more and more withdrawn. So he also noted that obviously October was a complicated month for him. And in order to decide, you know, to, to kind of make him up a time even more, he decided to try and take him on an outing for his birthday. I, I will just uh, stick in here one little thing because they were giving him this outing for good behavior as well because Michael wasn't uh, <laughs> causing any trouble in the area. And people might ask, mm. what about killing his fucking father not so long beforehand? In the end, his father got the blame for that one. Oh, his father will get the blame for that one, but I will because just point out as well that Smith's Grove had um had a policy that uh, and 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 even with the level of restriction that Michael was on, like Loomis fought hard to bring him out. Like there yeah, was yeah, level yeah. of restriction, but but I, like Loomis read the fine print to a T and yeah, he fought, like, but, yeah. but when it comes to like him not get beat, getting in trouble in this murder that he committed of his fucking father, it was seen as his, his father, father antagonized yeah. a, a child that he knew was already they don't had a tendency towards 100%. this so yeah. it was the father's fault in the end and Myers wasn't actually yeah. in trouble for that yeah. one exactly so as I said like Smith's Grove they had they had a special kind of ease of restrictions on special occasions and kind of Michael Michael's case wasn't any different so in order to take him out uh, Loomis he was going to need the permission from Edith Myers as Michael's legal guardian which was easier said than done uh, if he thought what happened <laughs> he thought Peter was negative uh, oh, <laughs> oh Christ like he, he just thought that yeah, at least he was there bonkers. at least he went yeah. to the hospital to make an attempt to get through to Michael that's mm-hmm. how he did deal with the situation <laughs> and she made her feelings very clear about him wanting to take Michael out and she went so far as to sign over her guardianship to Loomis so she, she just to, got rid of the child she, she wanted like, yeah, to take him out no problem she was done with him no in her defense he had annihilated her whole fucking family she he had basically killed her daughter killed her husband and i mean their relationship was already fucked after the murder of edith and he had taken himself out of the equation by being locked up and being so vacant and emotionless Mm. so now this woman who had uh the american nuclear family a boy a girl a house you know Mm. a husband has fucking nothing and it's yeah. all through this really tragic, crazy fucking situation. Like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. it's this this child that they knew from day one there was something wrong with it, there was something empty about it, mm. there was something not quite fucking yeah. right. So as Michael's legal guardian Loomis signed off on the excursion and on October 19th on his birthday, Michael was once again shaken down and Dr. Loomis's car was also inspected. 
And again, there was no cause for concern. So they had a two-hour window to take Michael out. And they, you know, they were extremely strict about that. It was like, he, he's not back within two hours. Uh-huh. Law enforcement is getting involved. You wish they were that strict about all this in 70 fucking 8 when we get to that. Huh? All right. <laughs> so it all started to go well. And Michael even uttered a few words to Loomis. So when Loomis asked Michael about where he'd like to go, Michael said, home. Hey. Yeah, so obviously that not being an option, Loomis started to kind of converse about him about, about where they should go. So they're passing a costume shop, and when Loomis kind of sees that, he kind of caught Michael's attention with a clown costume. Which is what Michael was wearing the night mm. he murdered either. Which, if I was Loomis, I wouldn't be bringing him to go get a clown costume. <laughs> no. Again, the, the trained man here. The, like, so while they were stopped at a crosswalk going to the costume shop and Loomis, he, he was explaining to Michael what crosswalks are for and the pedestrians crossing and we would let them cross because cars oh, might hit them. And next thing, Michael now, obviously his feet didn't reach the pedal, but he grabbed the steering wheel. He made an attempt. He made an attempt. Loomis kind of coughed and he was like, you know, he asked him, he's like, Michael, are you, you know, are you trying to drive the car with all these people in front? And that's, you know, he was like, you know what, bring you home. <laughs> what else could he do and that's it, that's it. Yeah. Like, we've spoken about his positivity towards uh, trying to rehabilitate Micah mm. that at this point we, we see an end to that so after the incident in the car and the death of Peter Dr. Loomis was seriously beginning to question his ability to reach Michael at any level but before he could decide on his next course of action, action was taken for him and he was let go from Smith's Grove, ultimately stopping him from officially treating Michael anymore. He was fired instead of reassigned the case because investigation had shown that the pencil that Michael had used to kill Peter was a gift from Dr. Loomis yeah. with the crayons. The higher-up believed that Loomis had become too close to Michael, too familiar and forgetting something sometimes about procedure and official guidelines. Loomis's relaxed approach to the usually docile Michael resulted in a man's death, and that couldn't go unpunished. Plus, his peers felt he had had his shot at Michael, and it was time for him to move over and let someone else take a look at the dark and twisted mind of the boogeyman. But who would have the balls? <laughs> so, a Dr. Parker would, and he tried first, but he was met with silence, as was every other doctor's attempt for years. Myers, silence. <laughs> so he Michael became what everyone always said he was a machine he moved aimlessly along the sanitarian routine taking his meds going to exercise time although he didn't really take part much I can see him like in aerobics just moving his arms I read <laughs> like from doctor's reports that he was actually taking you know I before he was brought out to the exercise yard mm. they would have physicians come in and do you know how, like, he was in Return of the Living Dead, they showed uh, when they went into the morgue to talk to the doctor. Yeah. And uh, he's moving the body parts of the dead body that he's working on. Oh. And they're like, why are you doing that? It's like, us oh, to work out the rigor mortis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they literally used to have to do this with Michael. Michael would sit so silently and so fucking impatiently. A physician yeah. would have to come in. Yeah. And start moving Michael's arms and moving his legs and moving him and getting him warmed up to actually get him up and out of the room to walk. I would not want that out. job. Oh, fuck no. No, I'd be like, don't. <laughs> well, again, see, to them it didn't because he wasn't. To them, he had killed his sister and his father. Outside that, he had been the perfect fucking patient. 
He's not screaming at night. Yeah. He's not fucking roaring. He's not hurting anybody. When you ask him to do something, he does it. Mm. He's just quiet. He's silent. He's empty. He's just I'd like a sorry blank vessel. I'd if it was a car firm. I you think, know, like that, I that's it, like, you yeah. know? So he was, you know, he, he made regular, like, medical visits at the time as well. He was, he was even taking part in arts and crafts. And the rest of the time, as you said, he just sat, stared, and waited patiently for something. And funny enough, in arts and crafts, it was always paper mache masks he made. Yeah. Mm. It's a thing about Michael too. He he didn't like the sight of his own face. Like he kept his hair long, draping it over his face when he was forced to take off one of his homemade masks. At this point, you may be asking, what the fuck is Michael waiting for? Michael waited fifteen years in Smith's Grove, waiting for the doctors and the staff to lose interest, to assume he was mentally gone, catatonic, docile, not a threat to the world around him, and that patience would eventually pay off. But before we get to that, we have to be a little more patient and talk a little more about Dr. Loomis and Edith Myers. The thing about Loomis's firing is it came at the right time for Loomis as well as everybody else. The force of Michael's sheer evil aura was proving too much for the aging war veteran. And although he couldn't see it while he was in the middle of it, you know, kind of like being, not seeing the trees when you're in the middle of the forest, yeah, you know. Yeah. His distance from Michael allowed him to reevaluate the case and his mental health that was associated with it. Between Peter's murder and the incident in the car, Loomis felt like a failure. It had been 15 years and no progress. In fact, all that had been proven over the 15 years was Michael was incapable of any emotion outside of violence. And that he could wait an innumerable amounts of time doing absolutely nothing until you let your guard down. Every time the same result. Michael would stay silent. Time would progress. Michael would be forgotten. Then Michael would attack. Loomis believed now that no real soul resided in the body of Michael Myers. And that behind his black eyes were nothing but pure unadulterated evil. Although he had spent eight of the last 15 years trying to treat him, now that he was not his doctor but still his legal guardian, Loomis was determined to ensure Michael never got released from Smith's Grove and was horrified to find out after years of being in a catatonic state, Michael had been downgraded to low risk. A quick quote from Loomis on Michael. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of love, life and death, of good and evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. During this this time, Loomis had stopped visiting Michael as a guardian as well, choosing to purge himself of Michael completely for his own health and sanity. Michael stayed low, low risk for a good three or four years before, in early 1978, another quack decided to take a whack at him. This time it was a well-respected and senior on-staff doctor at Dr. Webb. Webb had long been a detractor of Loomis's, thinking he was overblowing the Myers situation and that the right treatment just hadn't been discovered yet. So, on September 19th, 1979, Michael was to have another session. The first in many years, and this time Dr. Webb would conduct it himself. He would give it one more shot. He'd try to treat Michael, and if he failed after that, Myers 
would just get relegated to a doped out impatient for life. Forgotten about just another wallflower at Smith's Grove. This is how that meeting went. So this is an incident report from Smith's Grove about okay. the situation. I'll tell you what happened afterwards from um, Wilbur's own point of view. <laughs> it was a good point of view. Okay. But we'll get there. George Wilbur was alerted. No, sorry, not Wilbur, but at uh, Webb's point of view. George Wilbur was alerted to a scuffle in the room when he heard a loud, repetitive banging noise. Wilbur made entry to the room, immediately taking notice of an unconscious Jesse Webb. Webb was lay- lying face down on a table, bleeding from the nose and snoring. Wilbur alerted the other three guards to the situation, closing in on the scene hastily. Michael Myers himself remained seated, simply staring at Webb's unconscious body with a cocked head and a blank expression. Wilbur drew his baton, eyes trained on Myers as Nicholas Castle positioned himself behind the patient. Castle prepared handcuffs as Wilbur ordered Myers to his feet with verbal commands. Myers was not compliant prompting Richard Warlock to slowly close in on Myers from the left of him. Wilbur persistently ordered Myers to his feet, but to no avail. Warlock took Myers by surprise, grabbing his left arm and attempting to put the patient on the floor. Myers, still staring at Webb, rose from his seat. The sudden movement prompted Wilbur to rush towards Myers and attempt to subdue him. Castle rushed Myers from behind, placing him in a body lock, while Wilbur and Warlock locked onto his arms. Donald Shanks stood by, watching out for any signs of struggle. Warlock and Wilbur placed Myers' arms behind his back, prompting Castle to release the body lock and place the patient in handcuffs. Myers did not resist the process, but was stiff and difficult to maneuver. After Myers was secured, Castle attempted escort to, to escort the patient from the room by pushing him to his back. Wilbur and Warlock kept a firm grip of Myers' arms, leading him to the exit. Myers walked slowly, not affected by the pressure applied by Castle. Shanks, uh, certain that the situation was under control, attended to Webb, who was beginning to return to consciousness. Webb appeared to be confused, fearful, and uncertain of his surroundings. Webb complained of a blaring noise, which was the sound of the facility's emergency sirens. Approximately two minutes after the Myers had escorted from the room, facility staff, who had not accounted for this report, notified Shanks that they had called an ambulance. Jesse Webb was taken to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital via ambulance. Webb was diagnosed with a severe concussion, a broken nose, and a fractured jaw. Additionally, Webb lost one tooth, which perforated from his upper lip. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Myers was temporarily placed inside a straitjacket and locked inside his living quarters. Upon review of the tape from Webb and Myers' session, it was concluded the patient was intentionally antagonized by Webb. Webb was placed in a temporary paid leave from Smith's Grove's uh, Warren County Sanitarium. Myers, being a victim of abuse of power, was clear of any wrongdoing. Myers' actions were cited as self-defense efforts of a mentally disturbed man by Thomas Blight. Thomas Blight was the head, 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 head guy here. Mm, yeah. And this is exactly the same case as his father. Webb went in there with the attitude of, I'm not glad, you know, I, Loomis was good cop, I'm bad cop. I'm not fucking putting up with this bullshit. Mm. You're going to fucking talk to me, Michael. You're going to fucking take responsibility for what you have done. Yeah. And I'm going to make you take responsibility for what you've done. And he kind of started leaning into Michael and getting close to Michael's face and kind of making 
vague threats apparently okay it is yeah. kind of what the tape showed that it's looked like he would be in a threatening manner talking to him okay. so you can only assume he's probably telling michael stuff like oh you're you're right well i'm going to take your privileges away you're not going oh, to yeah, yeah, i'll definitely. take your mask so yeah, 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 that was something yeah. he was very touchy about like we said michael always always like always said that michael had the mask on unless a superior forced him to take it off in which case then the hair just draped over his face mm. you know yeah. so anyway webb got too close and the footage showed that michael because that was the thing myers was slow mm. myers moved slowly yeah. myers had to be fucking warmed up to go outside yeah but when Myers attacks, it is as quick as a fucking cat. Mm. This guy got too close to Myers, and one second he's whispering in Myers' ears, and next minute his head is being repeatedly smashed into his desk. Over yeah. and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Do you know? Violently. Yeah, yeah. And it was quick. They say like they said like you could the obviously since the seventies, so the video camera footage wouldn't have been the best. Great. They said it would just mm. blur. John just yeah. blah 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 yeah. his hand moving so quick this incident prompted dr webb to once again contact sam loomis this time hat in hand ready to be the bigger man and admit his failings and foolishness in not heeding sam's warnings the two decided then that the only answer to the michael myers conundrum was max security for life or to be put down and destroyed like a vicious bloodthirsty dog the law made him yeah. decide, made that easy. Yeah, yeah. Not an easy decision to make. Yeah, yeah. So you're not allowed to fucking kill Michael. No. Put him in max. Lock him up. And from that, the wheels were put in motion to have Myers transferred out of Smith's Grove to a max security prison with a super secure psych ward. Loomis would even deliver him there himself, but before he was to go, Michael had to have one last visitor to Smith's Grove, someone he hadn't seen in over a decade. Edith Myers had come to say goodbye. To find some closure before the last surviving member of her family was locked away in a dungeon never to be heard of again. Mm. Or at least that's what the staff at Smith's Grove taught. So Edith came. Very, very similar story here to Peter. Mm. But they have her behind glass. This is more of a kind of like you see in movies where Michael is at one side of the glass, she's the other. But obviously instead of the phone, because Michael isn't going to sit there and hold the phone to his face. You know, the, the, the little dots and the, the holes yeah. and the, the, the prospects glass and they're talking and she's doing the exact same thing as Peter's doing and it's why why Michael why okay. you know give me a yeah. reason you owe me a reason you're about to leave this is it we're done this is I need closure I need this to be over and she's constantly getting riled up and she's getting worse and worse and worse mm. so like you know like we're saying again Peter was antagonizing him she wasn't antagonizing him she was just getting hysterical Okay. And next thing she pulled out a gun. Okay. And she starts pointing it at Michael. And she's threatening to fucking shoot. Yeah. And the security come down her as quick as they can, but they're pointing the gun at her now. She's pointing the gun at Michael. They're telling her, you know, put the gun down, put the gun down, yeah, put the gun yeah. down. She took a shot. It's bulletproof fucking glass. So hits her hits the fucking thing. Ricochet. Ricochet kind of grazes at kind of one of the cops uh, out of the security, so they have to take a warning shot at her. Yeah. She takes another shot, they shoot her, she's down. She takes another shot at Ricochet's back and hits her in the chest. So she Ooh. is pretty fucking well bad. And they, Michael is taken away back to his the cell, and yeah. Yeah. ambulance is called for Edith Myers. So, um, obviously, 
Some time later, she passed away from those injuries. Yeah. But that was her last visit with Michael. She did not think she needed to be locked up, Max. She wanted him gone. She thought he should was. She just thought he was yeah, unnatural, even yeah. needed to be purged from this earth. Now there was no mm-hmm. point in keeping him, like you know. Yeah. So Loomis was the one to give Michael the news once Edith officially passed away on October 29, nineteen seventy eight. As expected, Michael gave no reaction. Myers silent. <laughs> It was here Loomis informed Michael of his upcoming transfer the next day and assured him he would come along to help the transition. He then told Michael that once this job was done, he would have to say goodbye permanently. So as to let him live his life while he still could before he became completely corrupted by the evil that was the shape. Loomis said his goodbyes and left, planning to come back for Michael the next evening and hoping to have Myers miles away from Haddonfield before the 31st and the anniversary that haunted his mind so badly. Loomis decided to take Michael by night, avoiding any unnecessary outside contact if at all possible. But as he and Nurse Marion Chambers made their way to Smith's Grove that night to pick Michael up for transfer, mayhem was taking place inside the walls of the hospital. Michael was known for his inhumane strength. Farmer strong, I believe we call it here in Ireland. Mm, there's actually, for one man. <laughs> oh yeah, there's like this short story about they tested this and they had him picking up like um the uh, kettlebells. Mm. And uh, each time he'd pick it up, no problem. Like the doctor would say there was no arch in his back, there was no struggling, no fear. Mm. And you know, they constantly up and it was, you know, first it was 5kg, 10kg, 20kg, 30kg. But that Michael was, uh, you know, first he dropped them. Okay. And then when the doctor said, okay, don't drop him again, it could do damage. The next time he placed them down gently. And then the third time when he had the heaviest ones, I think they were 30 kg, he yeah. was right next to the doctor and he fucking like launched them down. Like true, like dropping them, but throwing them at the same time, mm. barely missing the doctor, like kind of grazing the doctor and almost fucking injuring him. So yeah. like he was strong. They knew he was strong. Oh, yeah. So as the hospital hospital orderlies opened the doors to his cell to prepare him for transfer, Michael struck and the usually slow tamed animal, like I said, was moving like Speedy Gonzalez on meth. Like I said, when this white guy wanted to go, he moved, he moved quick. Michael snapped the first orderly's neck and then smashed the second's face into the wall until there was nothing left but a mangled, blood smush shattered skull. Remember too, this is not max security and Michael was perceived to be docile and not directly provoked. Well, not directly provoked. As the rest of the hospital staff ran in fear, Michael moved from cell to cell, unlocking each door as he went. He then opened the front doors of the building and left them all free to roam the hospital grounds. It wasn't long after this that Dr. Loomis and Nurse Chambers arrived at the sanitarium, and there they found every psychiatrist's worst nightmare. The inmates were now free and running the asylum. So, he pulls up. It's night time, and Loomis said he can even remember... Nurse Chambers heard him and saying, this is odd. They, they don't usually let him roam free yeah. like this. It's pissing rain. So this they shouldn't odd. go anywhere. And there's <laughs> yeah. these guys walking around in pajamas. You know, prison issue yeah. pajamas are just walking the grounds of Haddon, of uh, Grove Smith, fucking okay. um, the, the, the campus. Yeah. Now they're still locked in by fencing. Mm. And um, Loomis gets out of the car, runs over to see what's going on, trying to get on the intercom. No one's answering. While this happens... Someone, one of the inmates, jumps on top of the car and starts smashing at the car with Nurse Chambers inside the car. Like, so this poor woman, she's freaking out. And the window smashes and the hand grabs at her and Mm -hmm. tries to pull her out. She's freaking out. She's trying to get away from him, gets to the other side. 
when she gets to the other side, the hand starts smashing at that fucking window. So she gets the fuck out of the car and starts running, yeah, runs as fast as she can. Yeah. As soon as she's out of the car, this guy is in the car and drives off. This guy is Michael Audrey Myers. He took off flying on the road, leaving the nurse chambers and Dr. Loomis standing in the mm. pissing rain with these lunatics roaming mm-hmm. free, not knowing what the fuck is going on. But okay. Loomis said before it was even confirmed to him, he knew it was Michael mm. that had that had escaped that night. Yeah. He was yeah. 100% sure. Certainly. He knew it at this point, this is what Michael had been waiting for. Mm. The opportunity, the chance to get away. Okay. And he knew exactly where Michael was going. He was going to Haddonfield. And on his way to Haddonfield, he committed one more murder, killing an industrial worker named Christopher Hastings and taking to, uh, his great jumpsuit and coveralls. You know, just so he could get rid of his own prison or hospital issued PJs. Yeah, it's killing me. Like, how the fuck did he learn to drive? He's 21 now, but he's been locked up since he was six years old, right? <laughs> so, like, do they have driver's ed in Smith's Grove? <laughs> Maybe he was paying more attention to Loomis on the birthday trip than all Sam thought. Although mm. they thought he was almost catatonic, Loomis and quite a few other doctors were convinced Michael was actually a highly intelligent man. But yeah. then again, so was the Unabomber Tank Kaczynski. Yeah. So he probably could have, you know, he could have picked up the driving from oh, just yeah. watching Loomis that day. We, I don't know. I, honestly, yeah. who the fuck knows? It's Michael Myers. That's true. No one's broken into that mind yet, so or will ever. So, I mean. In addition to getting the new trades, upon arriving in Haddonfield, Michael broke into a local hardware store, stealing only a butcher knife and a William Shatner mask, <laughs> which he then turned inside out to wear, giving him a blank, ghostly, white expressionless face to cover whatever it was he felt he needed to cover up inside. He also stole the headstone from his sister's grave, which Loomis had found missing when he, he went to go check that headstone just to mm. fucking convince himself 100% that he was right, he was having me, even though he had found yeah. Michael Myers' PJs on the fucking mm. way, like, you know. Yeah. So he, once he knew that gravestone was there, he knew Myers was there. Okay, so this is it then. We're finally here. Yep. We're here, October 31st, 1978, the night Michael Myers came home. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page, where for just five euro a month, you get up to 12 extra shows in that month, along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week, we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters, where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers, or Behind the Mask, where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this, plus movie reviews, watch-alongs, and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And, and by bang, I mean, like, podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod and start listening now. In 1978, 17 year old Laurie Strode was a kind hearted yet introverted girl who attended Haddonfield High School with her friends Annie Brackett and Linda Van, Linda Vanderklok. So Laurie was shy and bookish and she did not share her friends' overt personalities. She always claimed that her brainy ways kind of scared boys away, which accounted for her sparse dating history. 
So on October 31st, her father asked Laurie to drop off a set of keys to the old Myers house, which had been on the market for a pretty long time. (laughs) (laughs) What Laurie didn't know was the old Myers house wasn't unoccupied anymore. And as she delivered the keys, as her father had asked, a shape watched her from inside the window. Maybe she resembled Judith in some way. Maybe it was just being the same age. But the shape fixed his gaze on Laurie Strode and the switch that flicked in his head in 1963 that told him he needed to annihilate his whole family flipped again. And now for apparently no reason at all, Laurie Strode and her circle of friends would be his new mission. Targets to rip through, toys to manipulate and play with. People play up like Michael was in human brain as killing machine, but in reality, I could not be further from the truth. He manipulated and toyed with not just victims, but doctors, judges, psychological experts. He might not have shown much emotion to the outside world, but I promise you the gears in that engine were grinding constantly. He knew what he was doing and he enjoyed it. Even if it wasn't in a conventional, regular way of feeling enjoyment, he 100% took pleasure from his rage. So, I mean, like, once he'd locked on and Laurie at this point. Um, and I, I want to get something out of the way before we go any further, okay? Mm-hmm. The events that happen here tonight kind of start sending Dr. Loomis down this strange fucking path. This mm-hmm. really uh, obsessive, fucked up path that we will get into a lot more next week. Okay. And he, he claims at some point that there was another Myers child. Mm-hmm. And that Myers, uh, that Michael was the middle kid, and that there was a baby, and it was a daughter, and that Laurie Strode was, and that was the adopted child and of the Myers family. Okay. Now DNA tests showed later that was false. False. But this is information that Loomis had come up with and all this stuff. So anybody that had heard that story before, that's bullshit. Okay. She happened to fucking be a girl around his sister's age who dropped keys at his house and one of the first teenagers he laid eyes on. When he got Haddonfield, yeah, you know, okay. that morning. So, um, so I compared Michael already to being like the Terminator, you know? Yeah. All in mind, he is, look, he, he is going to track down his Sarah Connor. Oh, yeah. Do you know? So, he was locked on Laurie. And Laurie will tell you herself that she continued to see this man throughout the day. Mm. Now, remember, it's Halloween. Yeah. So, people are in costume. Mm. And that could be kind of ignored. And she okay. said the first time she noticed him, she said she was in class. And she was, as we do in school when you're a teenager, you're staring out the window. And she noticed, she sees the station wagon and there's this man. And all she can see is that he's very pale. And he's staring at the school. Mm. And she, she looks over once, she sees him, she looks away. Obviously, she kind of realizes that very pale. Is he wearing a mask? She looks over again, he's still there. He is wearing a mask. He's still staring. Okay. She pays no attention. Yeah. She just thinks it's a bit strange. Yeah. She Obviously. looks away again, and when she looks back in, he's gone. Car's gone. Everything's Ooh. gone. Back. Later on that day, she is walking home with her friends, mm-hmm. Linda and uh, Annie, mm-hmm. and the same station wagon starts driving up behind them. And Laurie points it out to the girls. It's like shit. This this guy, you know, he yeah. was. I saw him earlier on today. Annie apparently roared out something at him, I can't remember, something about speed kills or something like that. The car stopped, and they all kind of stood there, kind of frozen, waiting to see what would happen. And according to Laurie, he just drove on. Then they were walking down the road even further, and they got to Linda's house, Linda Vanderclock. 
Every time I hear her name, I oh, just yeah. think she's the daughter of the band Deck Clock. <laughs> I can just picture her going home and the five members of Deck Clock being her dad, like uh, five dads. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they, they, they get to her house, she goes off inside, and then Laurie looks down and she sees the same guy, white uh, mask, standing there, staring at her. Yeah. She turns to say it to Annie, and when she looks back, the man's gone again. So she thinks she's fucking losing her Obviously, mind at this point, yeah. you know? Yeah. But realistically, Michael is following her, like, you know? Okay. And he's the way he's able to move. He's silent. He just zips in and all places. No one can, no one understands how this guy who could spend so fucking long not moving mm. could be so nimble, so quick, so quiet, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, to the point that then she got home herself. And she claimed she was looking out the window and there were sheets blowing in the wind and she swore to fuck that she saw him in those sheets. Mm. She said the sheet blew, she saw him when it came back, he was gone. Now, again, if your mind paint tricks on her, you yeah. don't know. You know yourself when you start getting a little paranoid, you start seeing things that aren't really there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy was there. Whether he was there with the sheets, I don't know. But he was there the rest of the time. And he was watching. Anyway... Like we were talking about earlier, Laurie wasn't exactly the super popular cheerleader type and didn't really have a date for the night. So Halloween night, she was going to be babysitting at Tommy Doyle's house. Meanwhile, Annie Brackett would be babysitting Lindsay Wallace across the street because her boyfriend, um, what's her boyfriend's name again? I can't remember, I think it's Paul. Paul, I think it's Paul, it's Paul. He was grounded <laughs> for egging and uh, ah. fucking toilet paper in a house or something. So uh, the girl's friend Linda was looking for somewhere to hook up with her boyfriend Bob Sims. And so the girls agreed that Annie would do Linda a favor and take Lindsay over to Laurie at the Doyle's residence. Yeah, but before that plan could be coming to action, Annie's grounded boyfriend got early release from, the house, from his house arrest. So Annie was now going to leave Laurie with all the kids and go collect her boyfriend Paul and join Linda and Bob for some good old fashioned Christian fun. Sure. At least that's what my parents told me the 70s were like. Mm-hmm. Laurie being the nice, good girl she was known to be, entertained the two kids with pumpkin carving and scary movies. But when time started to pass by and the Wallace home remained in darkness, Laurie began to worry. That's when Tommy looked out the window and let out a shriek. The boogeyman! The boogeyman! Laurie, convinced the scary movies and sugar had finally gotten too much for Tommy, ushered him away from the window. Finally, Laurie got through to Linda. But instead of uh, talking, it sounded like Laurie had caught her in mid-coitus as Linda moaned and gasped for breath at the other end of the line. Laurie put up with it, but when Linda went silent and all she could hear on the line was breathing, heavy, deep, muffled breathing, she started to get a bit worried and decided she better call over just to make sure everything's okay, you know, and check everything out. Okay. So remember now, that's the 70s. She got the two kids to just hang out at home and told them she'd be back in two seconds. She's only going across the road. This is the time when your doors were left unlocked overnight. You know, nothing yeah. bad was expected to happen. The two kids just were to stay and watch TV. She was going to go over, check on her friends, make sure everything was okay because yeah. something strange was going on. So Laurie head on across, went on across the road. Mm. When she got into the house, it was, as I said, in darkness. Yeah, yeah. And she was calling... For Annie and for Linda and for Paul and for fucking Bob and no one was answering. Okay. So she's starting to get a little worried. She's getting a bit fucking paranoid. She goes up the stairs. Mm. She heads up the stairs, heads, starts looking through the rooms and she finally gets to 
the master bedroom. Okay. Where she finds Annie, mm. who she thinks is sleeping. But at the head of Annie's bed is a headstone. The missing headstone of Judith Myers. Ooh, and when okay. she got closer, she could see that Annie's throat had been slit. And that she was obviously brown bread. Yeah, yeah, and now yeah. sitting here is almost like a, a tribute to the slain sister of Michael Myers. Yeah. As she turned around... I believe it was Paul or Bob. It was Bob. Bob came swinging on in after being stabbed in the chest by Michael Myers. He was uh, left hanging there upside down in the closet. Uh, They found in the house later on in the investigation, they found a stab wound or a knife wound with a blood pattern. And it was high up. They reckon like it was his blood as well when they checked it out. He was like lifted in the air and stabbed and hung. By the chest from the from the knife by Myers, yeah. right? Then she turned around again, only to find Linda pretty much fucking boxed up into this little closet fucking thing, all smashed mm. up and dead. Yeah. So she panics, she backs up, and she starts to back away. Mm. She said she couldn't see much; it was very dark. But then she noticed it, and out of the darkness, she could see that pale white mask start to form. And it got closer as it came out of the darkness and towards her. So it came towards her, slashing at her with a knife. Managed to kind of just damage her fucking shirt a little bit, but knocked Mm. her and she went over the top. But you know the way the top of our stairs is? We have that kind of, as they call it, a gallery. Mm. And you have uh, the spindles and all that. And then you can go down the stairs. She kind of fell over the kind of spindles, the the banister and spindles of the gallery kind of area. And down the stairs. She was looking at the fucking break her neck. It was a big fall. Um, but you know fucking adrenaline is pumping all her friends are dead there's a psychopath after she gets up she gets moving she runs across the road as fast as she can before this guy can get down after her because all oh, no, Myers moved quick when he wanted to 90% mm. of the time this guy just stalked you he walks slowly behind yeah. he'd let you fumble and fall and he'll get you when he's ready yeah. you know yeah. he'll get you at his pace that's how confident this man yeah. was with in his ability to get to you and murder you okay so he, she will Bolts across, gets upstairs, tells the kid they gotta go hide. Gotta go hide. Mm. The boogeyman's coming to get us. Go fucking hide. So the, yeah. she locks the kids in one room and she runs into another and gets into a closet. But before she does, she opens up a glass door to a balcony, okay. trying to trick Myers into thinking that she went out over the balcony and uh, to escape. Okay. Again, Myers ain't no dumb dumb. Yeah, of course, yeah. Do you know, as soon as he walked into that room, he ignored the open door. And walk mm. straight for the closet. She jammed the closet closed from locked from the inside, so he is banging at it. And this is an oh, this man is unbelievable strength. And this is just an old fucking you know, light wood MDF kind of shit. And he is beating at that wood, and yeah. he starts knocking it with the knife and slicing through. And he's getting in there, but he only has the top half broken through. And he's swiping at her and swiping at her. Laurie was quick enough to realize there was hangers there. She grabbed one of the wire hangers undid it as quick as she could and mm. stabbed Myers in the eye blinding oh, yeah. him in one eye for life yeah. Myers only had vision in one eye after this point so he kind of fucking stumbles backwards and drops to the floor okay. Laurie thought she had him dead yeah. she gets the fuck out there runs tells the kids you need to go get out of the house mm. right now yeah. go get help get the police get him back here yeah. Myers is on the ground she thinks dead behind her she's sitting there trying to collect herself the kids run outside first person the kids come across is Loomis. Loomis. Loomis, for some reason, had clicked that 
you know, Myers would be stalking down the stretch. And he had spent most of the night at the Myers house. Okay. But for some reason, had started making his way down this direction. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a little more on that as well later because there was a lot of incidents that he caused as well in this night that were really fucked up. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Um. Anyway, kids tell him what's going on. He tells the kids to do what Laurie says, go get the cops, and he'll go inside to get Laurie. Okay. He goes upstairs, and as he say, he said, as he went up the stairs, he saw Myers grabbing onto Laurie, coming up behind her again, grabbing on, fucking hanger still in his fucking mm. eye, mm. holding on to her, trying to get a hold of her, and she's trying to fight him off. He was, she was able to push him back long enough by grabbing his mask and pulling at it. Okay. She pulled the mask. It revealed his face. He fucking panics over this again. Because again, can't handle his face being shown for some reason. Okay. As he's trying to put the mask back on, Loomis fucking apparently claims to have left six bullets loose on him. Now, there wasn't six full-on wounds on him when they got him later on, when they captured him again later on. And if he got, you have to assume he'd die. But he stumbled backwards out the open door for the balcony and off the balcony and okay. on the floor Loomis said he himself went over checked and saw him lying on the ground in the grass on the lawn dead okay no and obviously he didn't check his vitals or anything but he just shot him six times and saw him fall two stories so you know yeah. he was pretty convinced oh yeah so um you know Laurie was in a state of shock with that one so Laurie genuinely asked Loomis in her state of shock was that the boogeyman now Loomis replied I do believe it was. She'll tell you again how much of a problem mm. Loomis was in this case oh, as well. Yeah. I think like once he lost faith in fucking in Michael, Loomis was known for the dramatics. Yeah, he, yeah. He go overboard with this shit a little bit, yeah. like you know. Yeah. Anyway, Loomis went to do just again confirm for himself. Now maybe again I'm about to prove myself wrong here and him right mm-hmm. because he does go again to confirm that Michael is dead, and when he looks out over the balcony again. Myers is missing. He's gone. Yeah. This fucker has gotten up again and walked off. Now, what I didn't mention early on was Annie Brackett, mm. who was left laying in the bed with, at the head, with the headstone, was the daughter of Sheriff Lee Brackett, who oh, was shit. out on the case looking for Myers at the time. That's awful. So, yeah, he obviously had to come upon his daughter's okay. murder scene. Mm. Um, he left after that body was found he did go home to his wife and you know to oh, Kelly, yeah, obviously, well, you know, yeah, obviously to agree but yeah. the rest of the cops were on full alert and there was an entire sweep they knew he was in the general area he couldn't have went far he was shot six fucking times stabbed in the eye so he's blind in one eye mm. we know he's around this area somewhere we're just not sure where okay now he fled around the back alleys of Haddonfield. He killed another teenager by the name of Alice Martin inside her own house. And then he broke into an elementary school and scrolled the word sewing into a chalkboard in blood. That okay. is sewing, America. Sewing. Not Samhain. Sewing. <laughs> November in Irish. Sewing. That is what it is. As news of the murder spread, chaos erupted in Haddonfield with citizens rioting and teenager Bennett Tramer being killed in the confusion. So that's what I was talking about earlier on. Mm -hmm. Loomis was fucking frantic. Mm. He's running around with the cops and he is telling them what to do. Yeah, yeah. And a kid who just happened to be wearing 
the William Shatner mask, the mm. right way around, and overalls. Yeah. For whatever reason, they just happened to match. It's just wild coincidence. Mm. Was walking on road and Joe, he didn't pay any attention to the fucking colour of the face. He just fucking started screaming, there's Michael, there's Michael, there's Michael. Say, started yeah. taking shots. The kid ended up getting plowed by a car and went on fire. And Shit. died. This innocent kid who was yeah. old. Older kid. He was about 13, 14. He was tall. He was out trick-or-treating. Yeah. Yeah. And he, yeah. So, and that was fucking solely Loomis's fault for being oh, fanatical yeah. when yeah. he saw something that he thought Generally, was Michael yeah. Myers like, you know? So, uh, as this was all going on, this chaos was going on, two deputies were told that, uh, to say close within the proximity of the Myers house. And that was Deputy uh, Higgins and P- uh, Deputy Pete McCabe. Um, so, they are walking around the back streets talking shit. Because, again, they had actually been in school when Myers was in school. When the murders had happened. Oh, so, yeah. you know, this was pretty close to home for them. This was only 15 years ago. So, yeah. these guys were teenagers when this happened. Yeah. They're talking about the original situation. Oh, it's crazy. He's back. They're looking for him. It's like, oh, do you really think he got shot six times? Mm-hmm. And they notice blood splatter. Okay. And they start to follow this trail and it leads them right back to the Myers house. Mm-hmm. And they head right inside. Um, So, they walk around the house. They do a bit of a sweep. Seems like it's empty. Everything's mm. cool. Yeah. No sign of Michael. And then they go up into the room. Just morbid curiosity. Wait, you know your way. You, I of would course, do the exact probably, same thing about yeah. the house. I would go to the room where it happened to mm. have a look. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. And, um, you know, I think it was McCabe was saying to Haskins. It was like, you know, I remember, like, John Michael as a kid would used to just, like, because I lived in this neighborhood. You just stare out this window. I wonder mm. what he was staring at. Yeah, yeah. As he said that, Michael, quick as a flash, came out of fucking nowhere from the side and starts bashing this guy's head in again and stabbing him and stuff. And he pulls him in front of, I think it was Haskins was his name. Yeah, yeah. And Haskins can't get the shot off. And Michael has this guy in front of him using him as a human shield. And then finally, Haskins goes to take the shot and shoots his partner in the neck. Michael drops him and he just... Gone again, like a fucking flash, like gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Haskins was over to try and give first aid to his his partner McCabe. Mm-hmm. Michael starts walking off down the stairs. Bye bye. At this stage, the entire police force of Haddonfield are outside waiting for him. Yeah. Guns drawn on the house. Yeah. Michael walked out, stood there, and Loomis walked up behind him to take a shot. And one of the deputies grabbed his arm, pulled him away, and they was like, oh, we need to destroy him now, we need to destroy him now, but they instead, just like he was when he was in the hospital. Do you know what I said, Mm -hmm. like, during those times where he'd be difficult, but once it was time to be arrested, he would allow them to arrest him and take him. Mm. That was it. He had done what he was, had decided he could get done that night, now it was time to just... Home. Yeah, they they had him, so yeah. he gave up and he walked and they yeah. took him right fucking back. He was rearrested and taken to maximum security psych prison. Do you know? Well, a psycho hospital in a in a prison okay. where he remained again patiently, emotionlessly, and apparently empty for forty more years. Once again, docile to the untrained eye, mm. but deep down it aided him. The one that got away, the one that took his eye, so he would sit and he would wait. 
once again play the quacks for fools and eventually he'd get his prize. He'd once again try to fill the hole that seemed to go deeper and deeper by the day. Forty years he waited to get his revenge on Haddonfield and Laurie Strode. Guess what? Just like him, you'll have to wait too. Until next week for Michael Myers Part 2 when we look at the years of 1979 to 2018. The cult of Thorn, a confusing family tree, Laurie going militia and copycat killers. It all just gets crazier from here. Just like the Sawyers are all over again. I fucking love it. We're done. Finished for this week. And Amy has been an absolute trooper because it is a school night and it is now quarter to two. We are two hours late for having it up, but... And we're going to be later because I'm going to stay up now and edit the fucking thing. You get to go to bed. But you you got work in the morning. So, good job. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but again, and that's not all. When it comes to this Myers thing, there's going to be a bit of a bonus in this uh-huh. coming up to Halloween. I'm going to make this a bit special. So, next week we have a, an episode. And I think the week after that, there might be some special Halloween stuff going on. Is for there? Halloween. Oh, maybe. Anyway, as well as that, we'd like to thank everyone who is supporting us on our social medias. Mm -hmm. I think within a week, less than a week, we got a thousand followers on our Facebook page. We got our uh, Instagram page. We got our uh, TikTok page. We got. Mm-hmm. We're starting to work on YouTube. Everything is at a live alive pod, or you can email us at it's a live alive pod dot gmail dot com. Yeah. Um, and everyone seems to really be enjoying Amy's great creepy pa- creepy pasta creepy pasta crypt. Creepy pasta crypt. Yeah, those are doing really good numbers, and our they mini souls do really good numbers too. People seem to enjoy us just talking shit. <laughs> I enjoy us talking shit. <laughs> so keep on listening, keep on following, and keep on supporting us. Thank you very much. You've been great to us this week and every week. So Thank we're you. gonna keep on improving. Keep on yeah. listening. With that, it's late. See you later. Love Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye bye.